I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This week, the mental health epidemic facing the world's refugees. A substantial portion of these people never will recover without treatment. And how dramatic films could help with the fight to end female genital cutting. So we work together with a very well-known scriptwriter and movie maker. So he was in charge of really making, first of all, a good entertaining movie for a Sudanese audience. Plus, a neural network with a memory. This is The Nature Podcast for October the 13th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Our first story this week is about a way to change cultural attitudes to the controversial practice of female genital cutting, removing all or part of a girl's external genitals. Jeff Marsh reports. Female genital cutting is still rife in many parts of the world, particularly in Africa, but also in some countries in the Middle East and Asia. It's performed on more than two million girls every year. International agencies and governments have tried to stop it over recent decades, but it hasn't worked. Even making it illegal doesn't seem to help, and in some instances has been shown to drive it underground, potentially stifling local efforts to change people's attitudes. It was high time for a new idea, and that idea was feature films. We had a big team down in Sudan, of course, so we worked together with a very well-known scriptwriter and movie maker. This is sociologist Sonia Fucht from the University of Zurich. So he was in charge of really making, first of all, a good entertaining movie for a Sudanese audience. It's, for instance, about one son really dreams about becoming a musician and, and uh, he's very talented, but it's not clear if that's an appropriate job or not. Then there is a little drama about um, a couple that's saving some money and this saved money keeps disappearing. So there is a not-so-nice character who's stealing money. And then we have all kind of other stories about love, intrigue. So it's a lot of stories that just can happen in any family anywhere. Recent research really shows that it's quite common that there is a lot of heterogeneity with respect to attitudes and behavior related to cutting, really within communities, among families, and often even within families. So people who have different opinions basically live door to door. 
And this was our idea to discuss the entire advantages and disadvantages of cutting or not cutting your daughters without bringing our values into the discussion. Could you paint a picture for me of the dilemma faced by a parent in Sudan when faced with this question? I mean, why does it occur? What's going on in the mind of the the characters in real life? It's really not clear. Is it now really harmful? Do I harm my daughter? Or is it good for my daughter? Does it really have health consequences or not? Is it now requested by religion or is it not requested by religion? And of course, they get different opinions. Another example very prominent is about the moral upbringing of the young girls. You know, is the girl behaving morally well because she's cut? Or is she actually behaving morally well because I educated her well? And on the other hand, there are the social aspects with respect to marriageability. Is it actually true that most families with sons expect daughters that are cut? Or is it maybe the trend going in the other direction and it's actually better not to cut my daughter because I can still marry her off well? So this is what I think is portrayed in our movies because this is the kind of question people in reality ask themselves and trying to have an open discussion about this um, to figure out what's actually best. Sonia and her team made four different versions of the film, one with just the drama and no mention of cutting, which they used as a control and three other versions of the film, which dedicated 27 minutes each to differences of opinion about cutting amongst the characters. The three treatment films included opinions in relation to marriageability or health, or a combination of both. Here's one of Sonia's co-authors, Charles Efferson, to explain their results. In the first experiment, we randomly assigned individuals within communities to the four movies, and then we measured their attitudes immediately after they watched the movies. All three of the movies about cutting produced large and highly significant improvements in attitudes towards uncut girls. Now, the interesting thing is in the second experiment, where we measured attitudes about a week after the movie, only the combined movie had an effect in that case. And that sort of further corroborates this idea that both types of argument are important in the decision-making behind whether uh, parents cut their daughters or not. But the fact that that one movie produced an effect that could still be measured after one week, after only 27 minutes of exposure to this material, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's an important finding that suggests there's considerable potential here for using this as, a, as an approach to attitudinal change. Can you explain how you think these films actually worked? What is different here is we're really trying to portray differences of opinion on this topic as a sort of normal part of everyday life. And the hope there was that we would minimize the sense in which the people watching the movie viewed it as a kind of an intrusion or an attack on their culture in some way. There's nothing in the movie to suggest that people who cut are bad people in any way. We take it as a starting point that these are parents who care about their daughters and they're trying to negotiate among themselves what's really the best decision. And we find that, yes, sort of dramatizing, and there is some drama, right? There are actual arguments at various points in the movie did improve attitudes toward uncut girls. If I were to have a sort of guess as well, I mean, I think... If you did have doubts existing already, it's kind of reassuring to see on the telly that, you know, a a, a typical family is also having these doubts. It normalizes the difference of opinion. 
Yes, and it potentially normalizes because at the very end of the movies, of course, they do resolve the issue and they decide as an extended family to to finally abandon cutting. Only after a, you know, a sort of protracted uh, discussion and even argument about it. So, yeah, I think that's an, an, an excellent possibility that it does somehow normalize the difference of opinion and provide a model of how to resolve it within the family. That was Jeff Marsh talking to Sonia Fuchs and Charles Efferson from the University of Zurich. And a special thanks to UNICEF Sudan for allowing us to use the film audio. Coming up in the research highlights, buried oceans on Saturn's moons and the drought forecast in the southwest US. But now, back to artificial intelligence. Yes, I know, it's a bit of a trend. This week, Google-owned company DeepMind published an algorithm that not only learns, but can remember. Back at the beginning of 2015, they published an algorithm that could learn to play Atari games. One by one, the algorithm mastered games like Pong and Space Invaders. And without any programming, it just taught itself how to play simply by watching and practicing. But the algorithm had a big weakness. Memory. Without a separate memory, it can't store away information and pick it up again at will, which means it struggles to learn tasks involving complex relationships. Among other things, that meant it wasn't all that good at the trickier games. Well, now DeepMind have published a new algorithm with its own memory. This one doesn't play Atari games, but one of the things it can do is navigate its way around that other fun ledger pursuit, spending time on the London Underground. Two of the authors of the latest paper, published in Nature, came into the studio earlier this week to speak with reporter Lizzie Gibney. Here they are so you can tell them apart. Their names are Greg Wayne. I'm Greg Wayne. I'm a research scientist at Google DeepMind. And Alex Graves. I'm Alex Graves, and I'm also a research scientist at Google DeepMind. And now, over to Lizzie. DeepMind works a lot with deep learning and something called neural networks. Can you just remind me what they are? Neural networks are often used for things like pattern recognition in images, where the inputs you feed in might be pictures of dogs or cats or something like that. And then the outputs that you you want from them are the label. Is it a dog or is it a cat or is it a horse or whatever? What kinds of tasks are they at the moment not so good at? Well, one thing that they um, have tended to struggle with are tasks that require a lot of memory. And uh, this this kind of system starts to struggle when it has to store things for more than, say, 100 steps or something like that. And so in this research, you've actually separated out your neural network and your memory. So it's a bit like having the RAM of your computer on the side versus the processor. So tell me about the reasoning behind that. How does this make it better? Having this division of labor between the um the computational part and the memory part, uh, that works for more or less the same reason that it does in a conventional computer. So, you know, first of all, it means that you can increase the, the size of the memory without having to increase the, the size or power or cost of the, the computational unit. At a more subtle level, you can store the same information in different parts of the memory. So just like in a normal computer, it doesn't really matter whether you're storing an image on a hard drive or in one part of RAM or in another part of RAM. You can still get back exactly the same image. And that's something that is uh, generally quite difficult to do with an ordinary neural network whose memory is fundamentally kind of integrated into its, its own processing. It makes it more flexible. And so what kind of tasks then did you throw at your, your new algorithm? In some cases, we were interested in problems that are like the problems that humans can do pretty effortlessly using memory, um, organizing their knowledge and being able to say, how do I get from here to there? Or what is this station connected to on this line? Um, that's That kind of question is hard for a neural network in general without memory. And our system was really good at that kind of question. 
for the tube specifically, we have a little uh, widget on the website that will that will do that very easily. You know, Transport for London will tell me how to get to A from A to B. So what is it that's um, interesting about the way that a neural net does it? Or why do we care that a neural network can now do it? We were interested in a very general, you know, class of data, which is data that can be represented as a graph. And by a graph here, I just mean that there are nodes with links between them. So, you know, in, in the case of a family tree, it's like um, A is the father of B or something like that. And so when we were um, analyzing what this network could do, we weren't looking at the London Underground map. We were looking at randomly generated graphs with, with very random structure. And we were asking them very random questions, just get from one point in the graph to another point. And even though it had been trained on this completely random set, which, as I said, includes many, many different kinds of data, special cases, it worked fine when we took a simple special case that we all recognize, like the London Underground. So, you know, compared to a piece of software that's been hand-designed to navigate the London Underground, the kind of thing you find on Transport for London or on Google Maps, for that matter, uh, of course, it's it's nowhere near as powerful. I mean, it, it, it only stored a very small fraction of, the, of the, the, the underground to start with. But the from the research point of view, the exciting thing here is that it didn't know anything about underground maps and it didn't have anyone programming any concept of transport or maps or let alone something as specific as London, the city. And so as with any deep learning, the way that this uh, actually learns how to do the task is by looking at lots and lots of examples. And yeah. and so actually it kind of, rather than being programmed, it it, it it teaches itself how to do yeah. it. Yeah, it learns its own program. And I think that's what's kind of exciting here. And that's how we that's how we kind of um, initiated this whole journey into having a neural network with memory. As we, we, we thought about, like, we want a, a neural network that can program itself in some sense. Because it was able to learn these sorts of relationships directly from the data, there's hope that it could also learn these other sorts of questions which aren't so easy to do. Like, for example, finding um, patterns in molecules that lead to, you know, certain uh, uh, consequences when they're used as drugs or something like that, or, or you know, answering very difficult questions that involve uh, piecing together lots of different uh, uh, facts that have been gleaned from the internet or something like that. And would this go any way to addressing the, the so-called black box problem of deep learning? Because we actually had a segment on that on our yeah. podcast last week. So you, you have an AI that learns how to do something, but actually you don't know why it's, it doesn't really have any reasoning. It's just learned to do it. Would, this, would you be able to create this complex map that actually tells you how it's making its decisions? So one of the things I think was pretty nice about the paper is that we analyzed in, in pretty great detail how the network was performing different algorithms. When information is stored, it tends to be stored in a kind of a location in the memory. And you can say, what was stored at this time when it was seeing an input? And then you say, when it answers the question, where is it looking at in the memory? So you can kind of get a sense of what it might be doing based on sort of what parts of its memory it's, it's attending to at the moment. But I think maybe we should say that it is still difficult. And so just looking forward then, so we've talked about some of the applications or potential possible applications of a system like this. Where is this on the eventual journey towards um, the goal, that I believe, is the overall goal of DeepMind, which is of creating um, a general AI, general artificial intelligence? I, you know, in some sense, humans are amazing in terms of the, the timescales that we can sort of comfortably reason about. So we can plan things on the horizon of, of a year you know, um, we can remember things from our childhood. Um, uh, this is kind of a, a small step towards getting something that can operate over a longer horizon of time and over more complicated relational data than we had before. 
That was Greg Wayne and before him, Alex Graves, speaking with Lizzie Gibney. To find out more about this algorithm, head over to nature.com slash nature, where you can scrutinise the paper yourself. Or to find out more about the black box problem, check out last week's podcast. And you can find a video all about DeepMind's Atari playing algorithm on our YouTube channel. Head over to youtube.com slash nature video channel and search for Inside DeepMind. Before we move on, just a quick shout out to Bert Wells, who says he listens to each show within a few hours of it being posted. And Kerry, he calls our enthusiasm infectious and clever. He doesn't specify which one of us is infectious and which is clever, though. And neither will I. If you want to get in touch to tell us what you think of the show, good or bad, or where you listen to us, drop us a line at podcast at nature.com or tweet us at naturepodcast. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes. Our next story looks into one overlooked problem of the refugee crisis, mental health. That's after the research highlights, read by Cory Locke. Droughts will become more severe with climate change, and the American Southwest will probably experience some of the worst by the end of the century. Researchers looked at the likelihood of mega-droughts, which last for decades, by running climate simulations for this region. They found that if greenhouse gas emissions continue their relentless rise, chances that the southwestern part of the United States will suffer from a mega-drought will be 70 to 99% by the year 2100. But if warming is kept to less than 2 degrees Celsius, that risk drops to less than 66%. The study was published in the journal Science Advances. A few of Saturn's moons seem to share a common feature, buried oceans. Planetary scientists previously discovered these oceans on Titan and Enceladus. Now they found one on another moon, named Dione. The researchers analyzed data from NASA's Cassini spacecraft. They conclude that Dione has a global ocean that's 65 kilometers deep and is hidden beneath some 100 kilometers of ice. These waters could be home to extraterrestrial microbes, if they exist. You can find the paper in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. This Monday, the 10th of October, was World Mental Health Day. So this week, Adam has been taking a look at the mental health of refugees. The start of this segment does describe the traumatic experiences of one refugee, and listener discretion is advised. Across the globe, more people are displaced from their homes than ever before. In 2015, the number of refugees passed 20 million. More than half come from just three war-torn countries, Syria, Afghanistan and Somalia. Behind these numbers are countless stories of human suffering. Thomas Albert is a clinical psychologist who works with refugees in Germany. He recounts just one of these stories. For instance, a person who came from the war-torn areas in Syria experiencing a lot of organised violence, bombing, shelling, and then trying to escape um, via Turkey and via uh, Greece again being robbed in, uh, on the way, in this case uh, in Bulgaria, and um, his wife being raped. For this person, it is very difficult to stay m- mentally healthy, and what he has developed was depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. And Thomas says this man is far from alone in his ordeals. On average, uh, right now in Germany, we see that approximately half of the refugees have a problem with their mental 
well-being. And it includes uh, symptoms of depression, of anxiety, and also in particular post-traumatic stress disorder. They experience so many different dangerous situations that they generalize and think danger is everywhere. They feel back in the war or in the torture chamber. And um, for them, it's uh, really impossible to function well. We also know that a substantial portion of these people never will recover without treatment. But treating these communities isn't easy. There are barriers to even getting started with treatment. Berlin-based psychiatrist Malak Bajbuj explains. Challenges are, of course, the language barrier. The second is the stigma. So psychiatric mental disorders are not well accepted. So we need to be very, very sensitive in approaching the patients. But perhaps the biggest challenge is the sheer numbers of people needing help. Doctors and psychologists are trying out unconventional approaches to reach as many as possible. One example is mobile apps. Apps can quickly get information and tools to large numbers of patients. Malik is working on an Arabic version of an app called PTSD Coach, which includes information and techniques to regulate stress. Another approach Malik is exploring is to change the way patients are filtered and assigned treatment. Normally, only patients with referrals get help, and people often have to put up with long waiting lists. But for Malik and his team... We have in the middle of Berlin um, something which we call the, the clearing outpatient unit. Um, the idea we had there is to do some sort of triage. So um, we, we don't care about who is referring the patient. So we um, see and evaluate, A, is there a need for a treatment? So that would be category A, those um, patients where we would say, or persons where we would say no treatment um, needed. Number B would be a low-level treatment is, is needed. And category C would be an expert treatment Splitting patients into these categories allows doctors to provide help much more quickly. But what should these treatments look like? Here's Thomas Albert again. People need an individual psychotherapeutic treatment that tells them that their experiences are, have happened in the past and there is no need to fear in the actual situation that the same thing may happen again. Luckily... Thomas thinks that lay people could do this job just as well as fully trained psychologists, with a bit of guidance. We can work with local people who have the uh, talent to interact socially and on a psychological level. We can train them to become counsellors for trauma-related disorders. Training normal people to act as counsellors eases the strain on conventional mental health services. And if they're from the same culture as the patients, it can also provide more reassuring care for refugees who are thousands of miles from home. Malik explains that getting help from someone from your own country can be better than even the most rigorously trained expert. If you would imagine you would be with problems in China and you um, would have the choice that somebody would sit in front of you, an expert with, with a translator next to him, versus somebody coming from the UK and explaining in your language, not scientifically perfect, but um, in your words, uh, what the problem is, what can be done, how to access the health system, you would choose letter. For Thomas, playing a part in this support network is hugely gratifying.
If you have a real person in front of you and where you can relate to this person and see, uh, of course you see the suffering, but you also see that something can be done and there is hope for the future. So it can be very rewarding to work with these people because there is the possibility to help them. That was Thomas Albert from the University of Konstanz, Germany. You also heard from Malak Bajbouj from the Charité University Hospital in Berlin. For more on the refugee mental health crisis, there's a feature this week called The Troubled Minds of Migrants and written by Alison Abbott. Finally, it's the news, and here is Davide Castelvecchi. Hello, Adam. So first up, let's take a look at Mars. NASA has been rethinking how they should go about exploring the red planet. Yeah, maybe rethinking is a strong word. The head of uh, Mars exploration at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., has floated an idea to basically change the way that NASA does science. What's wrong with the system that they have at the moment? Maybe nothing is wrong. It's just that it's a system that was developed at the time when NASA had a rapid sequence of missions sent to the planet. I mean, you may remember there were at some point three operating rovers at the same time on Mars. And And we had gotten used to the pace of every couple of years there was a new Mars mission. Um, But right now, the American agency only has one major mission in the pipeline, which is a new rover that's uh, slated for around 2020. And meantime, there's um, a number of other countries which are planning missions. So it's it's starting to be to look like NASA may not have like this this predominant role in Mars exploration, and it's going to be one of many actors. So how would NASA change as a as a response to its changing role in the Red Planet? So the idea that it was floated last week uh, by Jim Watson, who, um, like I said, is at, at Washington D.C. headquarters, is to have Mars missions that work a little bit more like the Hubble telescope. So the Hubble is primarily NASA mission. It's in orbit. And astronomers from around the world can apply to book time, which can be, you know, minutes to days, to make to do observations with the Hubble. And, and, and similarly, scientists would use uh, Mars missions as kind of a facility that different people can use it at different times. NASA aren't the only people, of course, as you mentioned, now talking about missions to Mars. How does this fit in with what organizations like SpaceX are planning? That is very interesting because commentators, you know, people who are experts about the space industry have said that they feel that NASA is a bit slow. And Elon Musk, who is this mega entrepreneur in California, wants to basically jumpstart the whole enterprise of going to Mars and start sending humans there as soon as possible with rockets that that he is building. And Elon Musk is talking about sending his first lander to Mars without humans on board just two years from now, which would be a lightning fast mission because he still doesn't have the rocket. Well, let's take a look now at a problem slightly closer to home and also slightly smaller scale. So this is regarding... RNA interference drugs. So RNA interference drugs are attempts to create drugs using something that exists in nature. is a way that cells uh, regulate genes. They silence or regulate genes using sh- uh, uh, single strands of RNA that attach to the RNA that would be used as template to produce proteins. So um, it's something that exists in nature. 
And so biotech, there's a lot of biotech companies and a lot of labs at universities that are trying to use this to treat various genetic uh, conditions. I understand, though, that this approach isn't doing too well at the moment. So our story it came out this week is specifically about one company called Alnilam uh, that had to pull an experimental drug that was already at, adva- at an advanced stage of clinical trials because of safety concerns. The, the difficulty with RNA interference has been that it sounds great on paper, but it's really hard if you make this synthetic RNA to regulate some kind of gene that's causing uh, a disease. It's really difficult to, de- to deliver this synthetic RNA where it needs to go in the body uh, because RNA is fragile and it tends to uh, degrade quickly. So there's various approaches, and the problem that has arisen in this uh, clinical trial was that some uh, patients started re- reporting uh, nerve pain. It was not clear that the nerve pain was caused by the drug, but it sounds like the company said, better safe than sorry, we'll just stop this trial. Um, and then its, com- its um, stock value uh, dropped by nearly half. It lost $3 billion uh, in valuation very quickly. Is there a reason to think that this problem, well, firstly, that it was connected to this drug and that that problem would rule out this whole class of drugs? It seems uh, it may be too early to say. In part, we may never know what was causing the problem with that drug because they, they, they're going to stop uh, experimenting with it. And according to Alnilam, if they had any issues, seemed to be limited to this particular drug. There's also the question of, has there been too much hype around this class of drugs? And are we now approaching a, a phase of more realistic expectations? So are people still pursuing RNA interference as a pharmaceutical method or are people kind of slowing down their investment in that now? As far as I know, there's there's still a lot of interest. But like I said, there could be some tempered expectations. Uh, there's there's the, the hype curve that people talk about in technology where there's uh, a lot of hype at the beginning when there's a new technology, then there's a phase of a major disappointment. And then there is a more realistic period when people, they have realistic goals, but they also realize that those goals may take longer to get to. Well, let's hope that they do eventually reach even those realistic goals. Davide, thank you very much for joining us. For those news stories and, of course, for others, head to nature.com forward slash news. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.